Man, I'll tell you what, if that don't light a fire, maybe, maybe your wood's a little wet, as they say, right? I mean, come on, that was good, wasn't it? Yeah, we, we got a good God. Man, I tell you what, whew, that was good. All right. Hey, Joel, Joel chapter two, uh, open your Bibles. Listen, um, we get into the message today and um, the, the title of the message today is the, the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord. And when you see that, that phrase throughout the Old Testament and in particular in the book of Joel, as he uses it, it's a reference to when God is going to take over an act primarily in judgment. And, and, and when you see that concept come out, it's a concept that strikes fear and trembling to the listener because the, the judgment of the Lord when it comes, it is a sifting between those who are in Christ, those who are right with God and those who are not. It's a sifting between the good and the evil of this world. When you see the concept of the day of the Lord appear, there's, there's both in, in the Old Testament, the prophets, there's both the, the immediate, right? The, the day of the Lord, as Joel speaks about it, is both immediate in the sense that he, there is a coming judgment that is localized in the, the area or the time or the place where the prophet is, is speaking to. And then there is also the, the generalized, which is still yet in the future. And that is the impending last days, the day of the Lord. We talk about last days. We can't help but anticipate and expect that the return of Christ is imminent. It can happen at any moment. And, and it's, it's probably drawing extremely close. I was heartbroken yesterday when I awoke and found the news that we have yet another war that has broken out in our world. And that people are, are, are dying, they're, they're being slaughtered and, and um, just devastation. And, and so when we, when we look at what's happening in this world and we look at where the, the trajectory of planet earth is going, we can't, we can't help but imagine the day of the Lord is near. I'll read it to you this way. The, the prophecy of Joel really is entirely about the day of the Lord, whether it's from the locusts at the beginning to the valley of decision at the very end, the entire thing is wrapped around this concept of the day of the Lord. And so as, as we get into this, let me define this, this concept or this point. I'm gonna read a commentary here. Uh, the New American Commentary describes the real point of Joel and he writes this. He says, his real concern was not locusts or enemy soldiers or even with the last judgment, the real subject matter of the book of Joel is the day of the Lord. Every event in the book is subordinated to that concept. It is here described as great and dreadful. Two words often found in the Old Testament describing the Lord. When Yahweh moves, Joel asserted, the old order, pay attention to this, the old order is inverted, the familiar disappears, and false security collapses. No one can withstand that day because there is nothing left to stand on. On the other hand, as we shall see, Yahweh brings new life and a new world order into being. That's the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is when God steps in and changes everything. It's when God will come and Christ will return to the earth. The first time he came as the savior, the next he comes as the conquering king who will sift good and evil. And when the day of the Lord comes, you better be ready. 
Joel chapter two, one through 11, we'll read this morning. He says this, blow a trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble for the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. As the dawn is spread over the mountains, so there is a great and mighty people. There has never been anything like it, nor will there be again after it to the years of many generations. Fire consumes before them and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the garden of Eden before them, but a desolate wilderness behind them. And nothing at all escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses and like war horses, so they run. With a noise as of chariots, they leap on the, on the tops of the mountains, like the crackling of a flame of fire consuming the stubble, like a mighty people arranged for battle. Before them, the people are in an anguish. All faces turn pale. They run like mighty men. They climb the wall like soldiers and they each march in line, nor do they deviate from their paths. They do not crowd each other. They march every one in his path. When they burst through the defenses, they do not break ranks. They rush on the city, they run on the wall, they climb into the houses, they enter through the windows like a thief. Before them, the earth quakes, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon grow dark and the stars lose their brightness. The Lord utters his voice before his army. Surely his camp is very great for strong is he who carries out his word. The day of the Lord is indeed a great and very awesome and who can endure it. The day of the Lord in Joel chapter two is announced with a blowing of a trumpet. This sort of trumpet was really um, not what we would think of as a trumpet. We would see a, a brass instrument with the little, uh, the little buttons on the side to change the inflection of the horn and, and, and something along those lines. The, the horn or the trumpet described in this passage is really more like a, a ram's horn or a cow's horn and they would hollow it out. You can see the picture up on the screen. This is similar to what, uh, what, what it would have looked like. And they, it was hollowed out on the inside and they would have the, the, uh, the hole on one end, they would blow in it and would make a, a loud thundering noise through the land. So they would blow this type of a, of a horn and as they would blow it in the Old Testament, it signified typically one of two different things, one of two different concepts that we're gonna see are actually very similar or very parallel in nature, even though on the surface, they would seem very different. The, the two uses for this, one would be in war. It would, it would be a, a trumpet or a blow to, to uh, unite the armies or gather the people together to announce an invasion or to strike fear in the hearts of the enemy. The other use that they would was uh, very different and yet in the Old Testament became very parallel and that was in religious practice. They would blow this horn as a, 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 a sign of assembling people together. Let me give you some examples to help us understand this. The, the um, concept of religious practice and using this type of a horn uh, comes in, in, in one place, in many places in the Old Testament. In one place in particular is the Exodus chapter 19 when the people had already exited the land of Egypt and they were making their way to Mount Sinai, they blew a horn as a religious assembly of the people around the foot of the mountain there. It was just a few months after the Exodus. And here this horn is used in a spiritual exercise. It's a calling or a gathering of the people together. Then on the other hand, when you talk about war, used for war, I don't know that there's any uh, more featured or highlighted example of this particular type of a, of a horn or trumpet used in war than when you get to Gideon and his army of 300. Years ago, I preached a message to a youth group um, called, uh, called the original 300. 
Gideon came and he took these, he had this army of thousands and God, you know how the story goes, he narrowed it down, narrowed it down, narrowed it down. And, and they had finally just 300 left and they broke into three groups and they surrounded the enemy camp at night and they came in and, and they blew the horns and they uh, shattered the pitchers with the torch in it and, and, and that, that scared the enemy basically into defeating themselves. And the one of the primary weapons featured in that story in Judges chapter seven was the horn, not a, a usual weapon. And yet they blew this horn and they shouted out the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. And so we see it's used in religious practice. We see it's used in the time of war. But I think what's fascinating is how the two can intersect together. You see, the New Testament teaches us that we are in a spiritual war. As believers in Christ, we are an army, but a spiritual army. We are at war, but we are not at war with flesh and blood. We are at war with the enemies, the unseen enemies of darkness in this world. The Bible calls them principalities and powers and rulers of the darkness of the air spiritual wickedness in high places. This is what we wrestle against. So anything that would have to do with religious practice for us is also an intersection of wartime because we are a spiritual army in, engaged and involved constantly and relentlessly in spiritual warfare. The Old Testament, this concept is not so foreign either. You think about the, the army, um, after they left Mount Sinai, and they, of course they tried to enter into the, the promised land, but they believed the 10 spies um, and they got cursed by God to walk through the desert one year for every day that the spies were in the land, 40 years of in-between. They wandered through the desert for 40 years and everybody over the age of 20 passed away during that time except for Joshua and, and, and Caleb. Joshua then at the end of that time would become the commander of the army and they, they crossed the, the Jordan River. Remember, God parts the Jordan River and they cross the Jordan River and they enter the promised land and the conquest begins. And this is not just a physical battle that the people are engaged in, but this is very much a part of their faith and religious practice of service to God because he had commissioned them, he had promised them this land and commissioned them to carry out judgment upon the enemies of God that were inhabiting this land. So this was a part of their religious practice in this very special time in history. And remember the very first battle that they're, they're right at the beginning, they're going in to conquer Jericho. And as they go to conquer Jericho, what are they supposed to do? You remember this story? They come in and they build these giant siege machines and they go in and with all their might and strength, they tear down the walls, right? No, they're supposed to walk around the walls because that's a great offensive tactic. And then they blow, the priests blow the horns. It's the same as, same word, the same concept as blowing the trumpet in Zion here in Joel some several hundred years later after battle of Jericho. That battle of Jericho signifies that this is both a conquest, a war, but it's also a spiritual exercise in following God and trusting in him. And so when this trumpet blows, it is a signifier. The times have changed. Gather the people for battle. Gather the people for war because we are in an eternal conflict and the souls of men hang in the balance and we fight and we wrestle and we, and we, we battle with the enemy. And it's a part of our spiritual practice. It's a part of our worship. It's a part of our religious practice in this world. And so when Joel announces this, blow the trumpet in Zion, he's announcing what? The day of the Lord is at hand. 
The day of the Lord has come upon us. And when we see this concept of the day of the Lord coming, it's both a warning and a gathering for the people of God. He's calling them to be on alert, to wake up and to prepare because something's about to happen. The day of the Lord is coming. This phrase used in the Old Testament by the prophets is to warn of the coming judgment of the Lord. It's a day of reckoning when the people of God and the nations surrounding them and all the people of the the world will give an account for their actions and they will be rewarded justly for them. For some, their reward will be judgment. For some, their reward will be suffering and pain because their actions were evil. For others, their reward will be good because God has made them good through Jesus Christ. And they followed him and they trusted in him. But the day of the Lord is coming. We look throughout the Old Testament and we see in the, in the prophets, the concept of the day of the Lord. I believe Obadiah 15 summarizes it very well by really, if you will, defining what the day of the Lord is here for. Obadiah verse 15 says this, for the day of the Lord draws near on all the nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your dealings will return on your own head. You see, the day of the Lord is that time where as you have done, it will be done back on you. And whatever you have uh, sown in this world, you will reap back on your own head. That's what the day of the Lord means. So we read this. Some millennia after Joel originally wrote this, and it stands in the word of God as a warning and a calling for us as well. The day of the Lord is at hand. The question is, are you ready? Are you ready for it? Because if you are ready, the day of the Lord for you will be a sigh of relief. It will be a welcome of the King. But if you're not ready, the day of the Lord will be grief and woe and misery without ending. Let's take a look at this passage and try to understand what the day of the Lord brings and what it promises. First of all, notice in this passage, the judgment of the Lord evokes fear and trembling, fear and trembling. The judgment of the Lord, when it comes, doesn't matter who you are, there's a certain trembling that happens with it. Let me, let me explain how this works, right? You're driving down the interstate, you're doing good. It's the rare occasion that you're actually going the speed limit or under. See, I know y'all well, right? You're doing good. Everything's fine. You're in your lane. You haven't broken a single traffic law at all. You're going under the speed limit. You're behaving. You're not traveling too close to anybody in front of you. You've actually used your blinker, which practically doesn't exist in the city of Atlanta. And all of a sudden you see off on the side of the road, a police officer. And what do you do? You instantly back off the gas pedal. I don't care who you are, right? You're in a 70 zone. You're only going 69, 68. You you still back off. Why? Because there's a certain reckoning that comes with that. There's a certain trembling, even for those of us who are doing right. Now, some of y'all, you pass that and you're slamming your brakes because you're, you're going way too fast. And you know that if he pulls you over there, he's either gonna have to give you grace to write the ticket that doesn't send you to jail or he's gonna have to send you to jail, right? But even for those that are, that are doing right, you, you still back off. It's a natural reaction because there's a little bit of trembling when you see that. Imagine what the coming Judgment of the Lord God, creator of the universe, sovereign over everything that is and was and will be. Imagine what the coming of him will strike into the fear or into the hearts of all mankind. He says, blow a trumpet in Zion and shout or sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. All the inhabitants tremble. 
At the sound of the alarm, the inhabitants should rightly be trembling in anticipation of the day of the Lord. It was a day that invokes fear and trembling. You say, preacher, I am right with Jesus Christ. I absolutely understand that. But we are still imperfect and we still fall and fail and come short of what God expects for us. So trembling, that same word tremble is used a few verses later from, from verse one at the beginning. It's used in verse 10 as well. When it says before them, that's the invading army, the earth quakes. When it says that, make no mistake, literally what he's describing is a tremor in the ground at the coming of the invasion, the day of the Lord. And when that tremor hits, you can feel it. You can feel it move. That's the tremor that we should have in our hearts in anticipation of the judgment of God Almighty. You say, and here's, here's where I think we have a, 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 maybe a, a confusion in the audience and the congregation today. Because some of you are like, well, preacher, I don't have to fear going to hell. I don't have anything to tremble over. I'm, I'm safe. I'm secure in Jesus Christ. And, and my, my uh, soul has been bought with a price and I am redeemed. And, and I know without a shadow of a doubt when Christ returns, I'm going to heaven. God bless you. God love you. I'm gonna be there with you. Today's a special day for me. It's October 8th, church. You've heard me say this before, October 8th, 1989. It's my spiritual rebirth day. That's pretty exciting. I only got one card from y'all. I'm just kidding. It's from my wife. Uh, she wrote me a happy rebirth day card this morning. And, uh, you know, I, I'm glad to be able to be able to stand here before you and with you and say, yes, you're right. If you were redeemed, if you, if you have been reborn in Jesus Christ, that, that is John chapter three, born of the water and born of the, the spirit, then yes, eternally you have nothing to fear because you are safe in the palm of the hand of the savior of the world. And let me tell you, he don't lose none of his. I'm glad I can stand before you today and I can tell you this, on October 8th, 1989, I sat in the back seat of my parents' Pontiac Bonneville and I gave my life and my heart to Jesus Christ. I trusted in him for salvation and he saved me from my sin. And when he did, he became my Lord, not just for now, but for all of eternity. And he goes to prepare a place for me so that when he comes again, he's gonna receive me to himself. And I know that I've got a place in eternity with Jesus Christ in heaven. And I know that I got nothing in eternity to fear. But the day of the Lord is a trembling thing, even for the believer. I'll give you three reasons why I believe that. The first one is this, it's because none of us is innocent. And even the redeemed, catch me, catch me closely here, even the redeemed may be judged on earth for their disobedience to God. We might be safe. You may be sitting yourself thinking, preacher, I, I've got my, my ticket, a gate ticket punched. I'm good to go. I got my ticket to heaven. And I'm ready to go, but let me tell you, on the way there, God's not afraid to pull over the family minivan and take you out and give you a whooping. God's not afraid to bring judgment down on your life. God's not afraid to correct and to reprove. Hebrews, whom the Lord loves, so he chastens. That word chasten, we may not use that a whole lot anymore. Let me tell you what that word chastens means in modern English vernacular. That means God pulled off his belt and he gave a few lashings on the backside of his children. And let me tell you, God will do that to those he loves, to those he cares for, he will chasten. So we better watch out church. Cause let me tell you, if there is a collective 
Christian group on earth that needs more chastening than the American church. I'm not sure I know who it is. We need to be chastened. We need to be corrected. We need to be reproved and then rebuked and then exhorted because we have gone astray. So none of us is innocent in this. But then reason number two, why I think we ought to tremble is because corporate judgment on a nation or on a group of people can negatively impact the righteous along with the unrighteous. Woe is me. You think about this concept that the righteous would suffer for and with the unrighteous, for the sins of the unrighteous, for the wickedness of the unrighteous, and then right alongside with the unrighteous. This is something that is seen all over scripture and indeed throughout all of history. Just because you're right with God doesn't mean that you might also not suffer with the unrighteous in this world. I think about old poor Jeremiah. Bless his heart. That man went through it. We think we got it hard. You can go read what Jeremiah suffered and he went through. He's sitting there warning the people and what does the king do? He throws them in a cistern. He's sinking in the mire and the mud at the bottom of the cistern. He had to get rescued. You know who he got rescued by? He got rescued by Babylonians who invaded and conquered Jerusalem. What a mess. And then after that, he warns the remnant that's left, don't go down to Egypt to seek refuge. You're gonna get messed up down there. Bless their heart, Jeremiah chapter 43, they don't listen to Jeremiah. They decide to go down to Egypt in spite of his prophetic warning against it. And they take the poor guy with him. And he has to suffer the very, the very effects of the prophecy, prophetic warning that he gave even though he was innocent. Then you look at old Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, the book of Daniel, bless their hearts. Those guys, they were, they were captives from the conquest of Jerusalem about the time of Jeremiah. Those guys got carried off into captivity in, in, and they had to suffer. And I mean, think about it. You look in the Old Testament, how many, how many more righteous people than the four of them were there? These guys that stood up in the face of absolute, complete, total wickedness and evil when it was easy to do so. And they said, no way. You know, the book of Daniel doesn't give us a number of how many Jewish captives there were in the king's court alongside of Daniel and his three friends. We don't know exactly, but my gut tells me there were other Jewish boys with them. There's only four that stood up and yet they suffered by, by having to go into captivity as well. And they were righteous people. And then I think about this one, Lot. Oh, poor Lot, he gets a bad rep. He wasn't a, certainly wasn't a great guy. And he had his faults, he had his flaws. But the Bible still appears to, to put him in that category of righteous, at least as, as Abraham, when he stood before God, before the, the angel of the Lord that was coming as a messenger to check out Sodom and Gomorrah. And, and Abraham, you know, he argued or, or debated with God and he, he, he um, got him from 50 righteous to save the city down to 10. And seemingly Lot and his family were, were part of that. And yet there wasn't 10. There wasn't even 10 righteous people in the city. And so the, the two messengers that uh, went, went into the city and, and Lot takes them in and he houses them in his house and he protects them from the wickedness of the people. And they give Lot the warning. I just wanna remind you of this. You know the story, Lot, his wife, his two daughters, they fled, Lot's wife, she turns back, she gets turned into the pillar of salt. But listen to me and listen to me closely. We don't have any indication in scripture that if Lot had said, no, nah, I'm gonna park it right here, that God would have saved that city for him. He'd have got punished with the unrighteous. The church, we need to tremble at the day of the Lord because we, we very well are, are at risk of being judged for the unrighteousness and the wickedness, the trespasses 
of our nation collectively. You say, preacher, well, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a pre-millennial, pre-tribulation kind of guy. I, hey, listen, I'm with you. If you don't understand those words, that's fine. Just kind of gloss over them. The concept is that when the Lord returns, we'll be raptured out before the real bad tribulation happens. I'm gonna tell you, listen, this world can bring a lot of other tribulation before those very end times. And, and if I had any gut or guess, we are on the brink as a people of experiencing some very great national tribulation and judgment from God. In fact, I would put it this way. We wanna be strong about this. I would put it this way. Just like in, in, uh, in the Old Testament, the prophets would say, they would say something like this. Here was the equation. If God doesn't judge this nation for their wickedness, he's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah in the last days for judging them. That's what it says. And I would put it this way. If God doesn't start bringing down judgment upon our country, at some point in time, he's going to have to apologize for some of the nations of time past for judging them. Because we've done some serious, grievous wickedness in the face of God and we have flaunted it before him. You say, but preacher, we're the church. Yeah, we're the church. It happened on our watch. It happened on our watch. And we didn't stop it. You say, preacher, I didn't agree with it. I didn't vote for it. Do you think the, the righteous of time past agreed with it and voted for it? We better fear and we better tremble. And then reason number three, and this one is the one that I think, if, if nothing else touched your heartstrings, this is the one that ought to touch your heartstrings. Because even though we might escape the enduring eternal judgment, the lost will not. It's our neighbors, it's our friends, it's our community. It's our fellow human beings. We started last week, another round of who's your one. That's our ones. Got your card with you? See them. Got your ones. This is the people who could suffer if we don't warn them. If we don't tremble at the impending day of the Lord enough to go out and warn these people and share Jesus Christ with our ones. You've committed to pray on the back wall. You've committed to pray in your heart. If we don't commit, if we don't tremble before the coming day of the Lord, what happens to these people, our ones? Let's pray together, even right now in the middle of the message. Let's pray for our ones. You pray with me, God. We're afraid, we tremble because of what might happen, what will happen. If our ones don't repent, turn and follow you. Lord, I, I think about the people that you have laid on my heart through the years to pray for. Everyone from my neighbor Soffit to um, just a, a kid I happened to run into in a school, Jaden. Think about the others you, you put into my heart, neighbors and friends and just random acquaintances. But then God, what you've laid on my heart for this year for who's your one? My own son. God, is, as I know I'm concerned about his salvation and I know you're concerned about his salvation, I think about all the people in this congregation who are concerned about the salvation of their ones. Give us a heart, give us a passion, God, to see our ones come to faith in Jesus Christ. May we tremble at the thought that you would return before they turn to you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Let's tremble before the Lord then not only should the judgment of the Lord cause us to tremble in fear, but notice secondly, the army of the Lord exudes 
or excuse me, executes his every command. The army of the Lord executes his every command. This passage is interesting because here we have a description of an army coming in to invade, but it's following what appears to be an army of locusts that has already invaded. And so when you, when you read Joel chapter two and you really get into studying it, you, you, you come up with the question, who is this army? What, what, what's gonna happen here and, and what is this army exactly? Theologians typically come up with two solutions here. One, uh, one line of thinking points back to Joel chapter one and says that the army in Joel two is a reiteration or a deeper explanation of the locust army that would invade and devastate the land agriculturally, which would have the ripple down effects we discussed last week. Then other theologians look to it and they say, no, we, we think that this is a human army that's going to come in and invade, perhaps because of the weakened state that the locusts left behind, uh, it allowed a, a vacuum of sorts for a, a, an invading external army to come in and it was an opportune moment for them to conquer the, the Jewish people here. And so you got these, these two thoughts. The, the one that thinks it's the human army, they typically point to signs within the passage and the text saying that, you know, the locust army appears to be something that's already happened. Whereas the chapter two um, is typically written in the future tense as it, of something that is about to happen. Um, so you, you see this, this concept, I think um, the, those that, that typically point to a locust army, they would say, well, when you, when you look there, um, it flows from chapter one to chapter two, it seems to be the same, um, the same thing, the same concept that's talked about. Um, and it appears that the, the language in Joel chapter two is um, more figurative. It's not describing actual people, but rather it uses that word like. It's like people, okay? So you see that thought. In fact, you look at verse five, it says that this army is like mighty people. Verse, instead of just saying that they are mighty people, verse number seven says they're like mighty men. Verse number seven then says they're like soldiers. So the figurative language would point to it not being an actual human army, but something that's like that. I think the other thought is this army is able to go over the walls and over um, the, the houses and over mountains. And it seems more likely in my mind that um, this is speaking of the same locust army and that the past and the future um, talk here is um, somehow the, the explained in just the, the language that Joel uses to describe this. However, let's set the argument about what the makeup of the army was aside for a second. And let's think about this concept, that this invasion in chapter one, which is obviously locusts, and whatever army it is in chapter two, both are prophetic images of the army of the Lord, the Lord of hosts. When you look at the Old Testament name, if you're reading from a Bible that says the Lord of hosts, a lot of modern translations now use the words, just the Lord of armies, because literally that word hosts is describing an, an army. I believe that these, both Joel chapter one and Joel chapter two are describing the army of the Lord of hosts that will execute his judgments on earth. And so while it may be a locust army and then a human army that invades following it, or it may be um, a description of both the same, perhaps they were in the middle of the invasion of locusts. And so chapter one and chapter two are both locusts. What is obvious is this, both of them become prophetic images of the returning King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And he will bring his army and the picture of Christ riding in on a white horse, the picture of Christ coming in with the angelic hosts to, to invade and to conquer this world. That's a reality that we must face. And so this army as well, it brings with it a fear and a trembling because the army of the Lord will execute his every command. It will execute everything that he ever desires. And when that army comes in, you better watch out. 
look at this army and we, we examine it. The bulk of the passage this morning describes the effects of the army here. Joel 2 verse 2, it's the unsurpassed army in its strength and number. He says, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. As the dawn is spread over the mountains, right? You think about when the sun comes up and that, that, that um, dividing line between what the light touches and the dark touches and it spreads over the mountains. So there is a great and mighty people like nobody's ever seen. The army of the Lord is great. It's without number. It is, it cannot be surpassed. Joel chapter uh, two, verse three, the destruction of this army would be all consuming and inescapable. A fire consumes before them and flames burn behind them. Nothing would escape the judgment of this army. If you think you can hide, if you think you can run away, if you think you can somehow escape the judgment of the Lord, you better beware because nothing escapes the eyes of the Lord. And when his army comes in to execute judgment, all better beware. It's appearance, verses four through six, it's appearance is intimidating. It's frightful. It's downright scary. You know, half of a battle is just intimidation, right? Half of a contest between two or more parties is just the, the intimidation factor. The army of the Lord comes in, it's intimidating, it's fearful, it's frightful, because we've seen nothing like it. There will, nothing, there will never be anything like it again. Verses seven through nine, it's reach, it's stretch is unlimited, and it's focus is determined. He describes this army, it says they don't break ranks, they, they don't deviate to the left or the right. They don't, they don't get sidetracked, but they are focused and they have a purpose and they will execute the judgment of the Lord. You know, we talk about the day of the Lord. We talk about that future, the end, the, the end times. Let's sit and talk for a minute about what judgment he might bring down on our people in our nation, our country, and what we face, let me tell you, if God decides and when God decides to bring judgment on our people, the focus of his judgment, the execution of his judgment will be completely and totally undeterred. It will be a thorough and complete destruction. Those locusts of chapter one that came in and, and just wave after wave and would eat through everything and leave just sorrow and woe behind it. As we look in chapter two here, it says they run like mighty men. They climb the wall like soldiers. They, they each march in line, nor do they deviate from their paths. They don't crowd each other. They march every one in his path. When they burst through the defenses, they do not break ranks. They rush on the city, they run on the wall, they climb into the houses, they enter through the windows like a thief. When you, when you read that, what you, what you come to the conclusion of is, this is a highly disciplined, thorough army. They have no weakness, they have no, they, they have no um, holes or gaps. So when they come in, it doesn't matter where you are or what you're doing, there is going to be judgment absolutely incomplete in every way. And then in verse 10, you see the effect of this army is trembling, fear, gloominess, hopelessness. It's just sorrow upon sorrow upon sorrow. You say, preacher, what, what is the point of even speaking about this? If things are going to get bad, wouldn't it be better just to leave us in our our happy little worlds until it does. Church, we need to be warned because what God is doing ought to be concerning and scary for us. Because his judgment 
It's coming one way or another. And I hope you're on the right side of it. Because point number three this morning is this. The word of the Lord endures forever. The word of the Lord endures forever. When you, when you see this final verse in our text this morning, he says in verse 11, the Lord utters his voice before his army. Surely his camp is very great for strong is he who carries out his word. Strong is he who carries out his word. The day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome and who can endure it? That, that final question that we close with is this, who can endure it? If this is coming and this is as bad as you say, and, and, and God's judgment, whether it be a judgment on earth that is temporary or a judgment in eternity that lasts forever, who can endure it? And I think the key in this verse, when you begin to, to cipher the verse and try to understand what it is, what you understand is this, God is going to carry out his word. His army is going to listen to his voice. Twice you have reference of the mouth of God speaking. Of course, we see the New Testament as well, which is the word of God is made flesh. That's Jesus Christ. And Jesus is the very word of God. He was the word in Genesis chapter one who spoke all things in being. He is the word of God made flesh. He is the embodiment of what we'd see as the Bible. The word of God is Jesus Christ. And then you see this concept of the word speaking, the voice before the army, giving it instruction and giving it its charge and, and telling it where to go and what to do and telling it what to destroy and what not to destroy. And we see all of this. And then we have that final question, which is in a sense rhetorical. Who can endure it? Because the truth is this, we cannot in our own and of our own endure the day of the Lord. We will fall. We will succumb to the judgment. We, we, we have no leg to stand on. Who can endure the day of the Lord? But then, while in one sense it might be a rhetorical question, in another sense, it's the dividing line of the day of the Lord. It's that division, because you remember, the day of the Lord is a time when God turns the world up on its end and, 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 and he, he brings out or, or does away with the old and ushers in something new. And it's a sifting between the righteous and the unrighteous. It's so... When he says, who can endure it? The answer, if you will, came some, of course, we don't know the date of the writing of Joel, but some several hundred at least years later, when that word was made flesh and dwelt among us, when we beheld the world or the word, we saw him collectively as, as a world, we saw the word of the Lord, Jesus Christ. And we listened to his teaching and we rejected him as the king. We put him on a cross and we crucified him. And three days later, he rose from the de dead and he resurrected. He purchased for us our redemption. And so when we see who can endure it we now have the completion of the picture because those who will ultimately endure the day of the Lord are those who are in Christ, who are in the word, those who have listened to his voice, those who have trusted in Jesus Christ. And when, when you see this in this passage, he utters his voice before his army and his camp. It's very great and strong is he who carries out his word. We understand that nothing that Jesus, nothing that God has ever said will not come to pass. 
it will all be fulfilled. And in all being fulfilled, when the word of the Lord endures forever, we also understand his promises in scripture that those who are in Christ will endure with him forever. So church, this morning as we come to a conclusion, we recognize the day of the Lord is a dividing point. And if you're in here today and you would be on the, the bad end of the day of the Lord, there's hope for you yet because you can get on the right side. And that's through Jesus Christ. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. If you're able, would you stand with me? We pray together. We ask that God has his will, his way in this time of invitation. We ask that God would use us to proclaim the day of the Lord, the coming judgment so that maybe, just maybe, we could reach a few more souls for Christ. This morning during the invitation, I encourage you, would you spend that time praying for your one? Spend that time praying for that lost person in your life, the, the one who doesn't know Jesus Christ, so that they too can escape the day of the Lord and endure through it, so that they too can know Jesus Christ and his salvation be resurrected from their death in sin. And if you're here this morning and you are on that bad side of the day of the Lord, your instructions are simple. When we begin singing this song, the prayer's over. You just walk out from wherever you are. You walk to the front here with me. You come up to me and just say, Pastor, I need to be saved from the day of the Lord. I need to be saved. We've got counselors here that are on standby. They're ready. They're waiting to talk with you, to pray with you, to answer your questions. God, we thank you for this day. We thank you, God, that you have delayed your judgment upon us. We thank you, God, that you give us yet another chance, another day to live for you. We thank you, God, that you give us another chance, another day to speak to our ones share Christ with them. Lord, we pray that you would use us. May we be a difference maker in this world. In Christ's name we pray.